I remember my grandma, I would celebrate New Year's in the Circulo Cubano, Puerto Rico every year. And all the Cubans in the table would say next year in Havana, meaning that next year we would celebrate New Year's, it would be in Havana. It's that, you know, that angst to go back to Cuba. It's a nostalgia that they, they didn't want to leave Cuba. They had their life, their family, they, their life, and it was taken away so drastically. So that nostalgia lives within them and it's passed on. Welcome to Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco. Filling in for my co-host, Danny, is... Leilani Rania Ganser, half a day. Hi, Leilani. How are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Do you want to tell the people um, how I know you? I'm your girlfriend. Yeah, thank you so much for yeah. filling in. <laughs> <laughs> Danny was working on finals. How are you doing, though? I should know this just from my life, but... I'm busy with work. Yeah. But not as busy as you with finals. Oh, let's not talk about that. <laughs> what do you do for work? Um, I am a water justice organizer. I work to keep water a human right. And clean. Hopefully. Ideally. Who are we talking to today? Today we're talking to Angelica Fangini Rodriguez, who is a master's student at the School of Continuing Studies here at Georgetown. She is studying journalism with a focus on Latin American politics and society. She's also a fellow at the International Republican Institute, and we had a, an interesting discussion about the Cuban-American experience, diaspora, uh, communism in Latin America, and exile status. I came out, I feel, learning a lot. Perspective-wise, yeah. I came out learning a lot that I didn't know beforehand, I would say. I'm excited to hear it. We should give our listeners a little heads up that the audio this week might not be what you expect from us. We've had a couple of issues, but we'll be back to the audio quality you hope for next week. Enjoy the conversation. When did your family leave the island initially? Okay, so my son, I'm gonna talk about my grandparents. They were the first to leave. My grandparents are from a little town the center of the island, Caballuan, Las Villas, well, now Santo Espirito, because after the revolution, see that Castro changed all the provinces. They were seven, and now, if I'm not mistaken, they're like 15. He added a few more, but it was Caballuan, Las Villas, now it's Caballuan, Santo Espirito. It's a very small town in the center of the island, known for its vast immigration of exodus of the Canary Islands. My great-grandparents are from the Canary Islands, and they immigrated to Cuba. My grandmother, from my grandmother's side, she grew up in her father, my great-grandfather, Luis, had a pastry factory called La Cañona. So let me tell you a bit about my great-grandparents. They were, they couldn't, they never learned how to write or read. They were originally from Pinar del Rio, which is on the east side of the island. But they left Pinar del Rio because of the hurricanes. And somebody told them in the middle of the island in Cuba, there is a lot of work where you can start working. They were about 11 to 12 years old when they moved to Caleguan. And with hard work and dedication, they started, they first worked in the tobacco shop. But after hard work and dedication, they saw that they could make pastries and, and sell them. So they would wake up every day, 6 a.m. in the morning, 3 a.m. in the morning to make the pastries and go door by door and sell them until they created their pastry shop, which today does not exist because the, after the revolution took it, they completely destroyed it. So that family heirloom is completely gone. But a fun fact, and the first préstamo 
that the little town of Kawaiwan did was to my great-grandparents. So that's a fun fact about me. But if you go to the town today, let's say Nakanyona, they'll, they'll, they'll know who they are. Um, so very, uh, when I've been to Cuba, they, they, oh, to the Nakanyona. I get very proud of that. But my grandparents left Cuba in the 1970s because there was always been political turmoil in Cuba, even before Castro. There's never been political stability in Cuba. So that's, that's something to note. But they left in the 1970s when my grandma married my grandfather. My grandfather was the first person ever in Cuba to be able to leave Cuba with a Spanish passport. So when my grandparents married, my grandma attained a, a Spanish citizen and she was able to leave. So the thing about my grandparents' story, my grandparents, my great-grandparents and my grandpa's brothers were able to leave first because they had Spanish citizenship. But my grandfather, Pablo, wasn't able to leave because he had military age. He was 18 at the time and he was forced to stay. So he said, okay, if I'm going to stay in Cuba for three years until I turn 21, I'm going to do something with my life. And my grandfather, he loves, he loves animals. To this day, he's had horses. So he wanted to be a veterinarian. But the government responded, we can't invest in you because you're, you could possibly be a tail to a revolution because your family left. So my grandfather was sent to labor camps in Cuba. He was there for three years and saw atrocities. He saw people getting killed for their religious belief. Jehovah's Witnesses were persecuted and are still persecuted in Cuba. He saw LGBTQ plus I being in those camps. He saw women being raped. He saw a lot of atrocities that a lot of people don't know that happened in these, in these labor camps that were inspired by the concentration camps of the Nazi camps back in the 1940s. So my grandfather was there for three years and he was then able to leave Cuba with his Spanish citizenship. And he went to Spain, he lived for Spain in th for three months. And then he went to Mexico, he swam the Rawe, and he was able to make it to the United States. And then my grandmother came and my family, my, my great grandparents were already established in, in Puerto Rico thing about being them in Puerto Rico was uh, my great-grandparents came first to Miami with my uncle and my other uncle, and they already had a daughter that was previous to the revolution in the United States. And they were working in Miami. They were business owners in Cuba. They started working very, very, I don't want to say bad, but they were a very bad job because they didn't know any English. And they weren't making as much as they wanted to, to live, you know, a, a dignified life, a dignified life they had in Cuba previously. So they asked their daughter, hey, what other place is like the United States where we have all the beds in the United States, but they're Spanish? Because at that time, Cubans hadn't taken over Miami as we know Miami as it is. Because I don't want to sound biased, but if Cubans made Miami, they made Miami a desirable place to live. Because after the revolution, all the businessmen, all the scholars, all the prepared people left to Miami. So to go back to the story, they said, where's another place like the United States, but they're Spanish. And their daughter said, my aunt said, Puerto Rico. So my uncle had $30 in his pocket. He took a trip to Puerto Rico, said to the taxi, which coincidentally was Cuban and said, what's a place where I can work and the owners are Cuban. So he took him to, to a restaurant, if I'm not mistaken. He made his money there, opened a junker, and started selling car parts. And then the whole family came to Puerto Rico. And to this day, we still have the business. And well, we've, we've been established in Puerto Rico for since, uh, since 1973, if I'm not mistaken. 
I was born there. I grew up there. My cousins grew up there. But we always stayed very intact with our Cuban roots. I mean, we always ate Cuban food. We always celebrated Cuban culture. So we always stayed in t- very, very in touch with our Cuban roots. But yeah, that's a bit of the story. And then when my grandparents came in 1971 to Puerto Rico, by 72, they were already members of El Círculo Cubano de Puerto Rico, which is for the Cuban community, Puerto Rico meets. It's a social club, but it's also a place where you, we celebrate our culture, our traditions, our food. So it's a place where the Cuban, the first Cubans in the 1940s were giving a bit of land. It's a nonprofit organization. Just hard work and dedication, they made it as it is today. And then anybody listening, I recommend you a visit it's really fun the food is great beach right in front of the beach the pool just everything really nice and they basically made Casa Cuba a second home that's where I grew up that's why I'm so intact with so in touch with my Cuban my Cuban Cubanista my Cubanita in Casa Cuba we went to Casa Cuba my mom grew up there my grandma's family all of them stayed in Cuba so my grandma would go each year to visit her mom and her sisters and her niece and nephews and one of those trips, my mom met my dad. They fell in love. And, well, then my dad immigrated to, to Puerto Rico in 1997. And me and my sister were born. And, well, that's a bit of my background. But, yeah, my mom was born and raised in Puerto Rico. Raised very Cuban. Cicloguana, Puerto Rico, Casa Cuba. And then my dad is from Cuba, immigrated in 1997. So two generations. My grandparents from the generation... Previous to revolution, right after revolution left, and my dad basically grew up with the revolution. So it's very two different stories. So that's a little bit about my background. Very that, long, but that, very long, but yeah. That, I don't think that's what I expected, I'll be honest. But I am, um, I don't want to say pleasantly, because that doesn't sound pleasant, <laughs> but I am, I have a lot more things to ask in response to that, because yeah. part of what I was going to ask was historically with Cuban migration, it comes in waves. That's always yeah. how it's discussed. Okay. But your family history seems to kind of encompass that yeah. through these different generations and these yes. different waves. And I'm curious as to how all of this has kind of manifested in you and the idea of free cube mm-hmm. and how okay. your whole family's history has affected you in that mission. Yeah. Since I was a little girl, my grandma would always tell me about what was going on in Cuba. I remember being very old, very young, I'm sorry, very young, a little girl. And my grandma would serve me the typical Cuban plate of arroz con friole, which is black beans and rice. And if it's it's not chicken, then it's pork and then it's beef. And by the way, there's red meat is illegal in Cuba. So a lot of plates that were with red meat don't exist in the island anymore, but are still made in the Cuban community. Ropa vieja, palomilla, vaca frita. That doesn't exist anymore. That's been maintained by the diaspora. And I remember being so full, I told my grandma, Grandma, I don't want any more. And she would say to me, Angelica, remember your little cousins in Cuba? They don't have anything to eat. Think of them. So it's like, you know, very aware. And sometimes, you know, my grandparents and my... And my, and my grandparents and my mom and my dad, I will always be grateful. They, especially my grandparents and my dad, they wanted to give me and my sister everything they didn't have in Cuba. That meant toys, that meant clothes, that meant everything in abundance that they couldn't have because of the scarcity that prevails in the island. And that's, you know, that still prevails. So I remember having so much toys and so much stuff that my grandparents would get me and my mom and my dad. And I would say, hey, I don't want this anymore. Throw it away. And my grandma would say, no, we don't throw things away. We take them to give to your cousins and your family in Cuba. They don't have anything. 
everything you have here, they won't be able to ever have it. So since I was very young, I was always, you know, always told about the reality and the situation in Cuba and always been aware that there is a very sad situation over there of scarcity, of lack of freedoms, of lack of human rights and of lack of human dignity. That really made my purpose. And also growing up in the Circulo Cubana de Puerto Rico, we had a lot of exiles come to Puerto Rico. We would have baseball players who would come to play to Puerto Rico, stay, and we would help them out, get them food, get them water, and get them a place to stay, get them a job afterwards. So, you know, I was always been, always been very aware. We had also one time come Uber Matos, which was a revolutionary leader who also who rose with Fidel Nasir Sierra Maestra, who was in prison for 20 years for going against uh, Fidel Castro and his beliefs. So I was always been very aware of Cuban politics, the Cuban situation, and I made it my life's mission because I have such a deep love for my family inside of Cuba and outside of Cuba who immigrated that, you know, I remember going to Cuba and, and, you know, my cousins, they didn't have not even the half of what I have. And they would always give me, you know, they had so little, but they wanted to give me and my sister the best. And there was this pure love in, in the house every time I go to Cuba. I still talk to my family all the time and I love them as if I grew up with them. So I owe it to them and I owe it to my grandparents and my dad who risked everything to give me and my sister a dignified life and our family a dignified life where, you know, I can do and say and achieve everything I want with hard work and dedication. So I've made it my life's mission. And also because I have a deep love for Cuba. I love that island as if I was born there. And, you know, I live for the day I see it free. I remember my grandma, I would celebrate New Year's in the Circulo Cubano, Puerto Rico every year. And all the Cubans in the table would say next year in Havana, meaning that next year we would celebrate New Year's, it would be in Havana. And my grandparents would talk with their friends who, who already have passed away. They would say, no, next year. We're going to go buy a house in Barreiro. We're going to take our family. You know, it's, it's that angst to go back to Cuba. And I've always been very attached to my roots. So my mission is to have my, my brothers and sisters in the island that that Cuban culture and that Cuban love unites us all to, you know, have a dignified life because everybody deserves what we have here, which is freedom. And a lot of people take it for granted. And, and that's my life's mission, just pure love and pure dedication to the Cuban cause. I, I want to expand on one thing. Because I think it's really interesting, Cuban specifically, mm -hmm. and the Cuban diaspora, yeah. where if you talk to other diasporas, for the most part, I would mm -hmm. say, or other immigrants, they leave and they stay in the U.S. And that is the goal. Why would I want to go back? Like, mm -hmm. this has been my home. Cubans, I feel, are different in the way that the goal has always been to go back home. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to talk more about what you were talking about earlier, about the Cuban ethics, yeah. the Cuban spirit, and how that is, I would argue, unique yeah. in this experience. So. Let me just, you know, there are a lot of Cubans who want to go back. A lot of Cubans want to stay. You know, a lot of Cubans in Puerto Rico want to stay, but they don't discard of getting their, you know, what they owned at the time, their house, getting it back and just go visiting for the summer. They want to stay in Puerto, Puerto Rico or the, Miami because they built a life. Oh, yeah. But, you know, they want to go back to and see a free Cuba. I have um, Casacoa who are ex-political prisoners who say, you know, Cuba took everything from me. They took away my freedom at some point. They, they took away, you know, years I didn't see my children grow. But I want to go back. I want to see a free Cuba. And they're 80 years old, you know. And, you know, I don't want to sound mean, but, you know, they're already in a very, you know, um, fragile part of it's their tragic. life. It's, not, it's you tragic. Know, it's, you know, they're 80, almost 90 years old. But, you know, they're so, they still remain so vibrant and, and, and in love with the cause of a free Cuba. So yes, a lot of them, you know, they've already built a life, but they have that angst, that feel, that love for Cuba. That's really part of that, that cute Cubanismo that lives with every Cuban, born inside or outside of the island. It's, 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 it's pure culture, it's pure tradition, and it's 
how our how Cubans are raised to to love Cuba. You just go to Miami and pe- you know people my age who grew up in Miami they speak Spanish. They know everything about Cuba. They know the the national anthem. They know all the songs. It's a very strong culture that it was previous to Fidel Castro because a lot of people think oh Fidel Castro made Cuban culture known as it is and that's that's a lie. It's it's way be- way before that. I think he's probably more deleted it more than just maintain it. All Cubans grew up with a love for Cuba and it's the nostalgia, you know. It's it's a nostalgia that they they didn't want to leave Cuba. They had their life, their family, they, their life, and it was taken away so drastically. So that nostalgia lives within them and it's passed down generations to generation. Because even though, you know, I didn't go to Cuba until I was 20 years old, I've always felt a, a long for it. And I want to go back because I want to maintain, want to hopefully take back what was rightfully ours, our pastry shop, our house, our houses over there that, you know, they belong to the state. They don't belong to my family. So it's that nostalgia and that ends to, to, to take back what was ours and to, to make that island, that, the island that we all love, to what Jose Marti, our, our apostle, dreamed of, of free Cuba. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Have you been back to the island recently or? So I've been, my last time in Cuba was 2020. I spent New Year's with my family over there with my grandma, who still lives in Cuba. My grandma from my dad's side. My grandparents from my dad's side still live in Cuba. And I was there with them and also on my grandma's side. I haven't been back since. Probably can't go back due to all, you know, I've been very active on the free Cuba movement. So probably can't go back. But the last time I went, I was there with my family. But every t- I would, uh, I've been three times to Cuba and not so far from each other. And, you know, I didn't go, let's say the first time. I didn't wait so long to go back. But it was every time I went back, it was just like worse and worse and worse. The situation that it was such a scene it getting destroyed. You know, when my my grandma, when every time she went to Cuba, she would go straight to her family's house. She didn't have time to go out and see the the town or see Havana. She would go straight to her family, take all the things they needed, medicine, food, basics, just basics that they can't afford. Or it's not available because of the scarcity. So the last time we went, we took a, a walk throughout her town and she started crying. She said, I can't believe this town that I love, that I grew up, that I walked this street. It looks like an atomic bomb was thrown over there. So it's, it's, that, it's that feeling of like every time you go, you just get sadder and sadder and sadder. And I can't imagine how it's, it is now because I talked to my, my family over there, my cousin. I just talked to her yesterday. And she said, this is island in survival mode. This is like five hurricanes, three atomic bombs went past by it. So it's a really sad situation. But I haven't been back since 2020. Most likely can't go back. It's a really sad situation. But I feel like I do more being telling people what's going on in Cuba than going back and seeing my family. It hurts because, you know, I have my grandma's, you know, she's in a pretty fragile state. And my aunts and uncles are in a pretty fragile state, too. They're pretty old. You know, it hurts. It's I think the the worst part of the revolution from refer Cuban is family separation. And that's something that a lot of people don't talk about. They talk about more of the political economic aspect, but the societal aspect and the personal aspect family separation is really the hardest. And I think about Cuban culture, family is everything. Family unity is everything. And that was really taken away when when the revolution triumphed. Can I ask a question about that? Mm-hmm. Maybe from a different lens, but I'm curious about in terms of separation. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's been a long time since the revolution. It's been 63, 63 years. years. I mean, that's 63 years. That's pretty significant. But, you know, the spirit is still there. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, first of all, what you'd imagine a post, not post Castro, but a post communist Cuba. What would it look like oh. now after all this time? And on top of that, do you have any 
I don't want to say concerns, but any thoughts on the time difference and how that affects cultural shifts. Like you said, red meat is illegal. Like the culture is Mm -hmm. different on the island than it is now in Puerto Rico or Miami or these other like enclaves. Yeah. Choose communist Cuba. That's going to be very tough because remember, the society that lives now in Cuba has been completely indoctrinated by the regime. It's only been eight, five, six years since Obama relations with Cuba and internet was finally exposed to a population. But let me tell you about a thing about a communist socialism regime. It doesn't just affect politically and economically, it affects societally. And society in Cuba has been in survival mode. So they're accustomed to rob. They're accustomed to polizquieta, you know, those morals and ethics that I grew up in, which were saying, thank you, please, can you excuse me? Can I have that? Just being very, very you know, having soft skills and, and, and modales, and that doesn't exist anymore. People are curt, always pushing you, seeing what they can take from you, seeing what they can steal. So it's a society that grew up in not only militarized, because at eight years old, my dad and a lot of Cuban, all Cuban children are taken away basically from their homes to go to school. And at five in the morning, they have to cut sugar canes or do labor and then go to school. So it's very, very militarized uprising so it's it's going to be very difficult because it's the problem is not finding a democratic transition that's the easiest part it's taking society and putting in in, and getting into the mentality of having let's say a democratic of market a system that's going to be tough so a post-communist society cuba is going to be it's going to be very hard it's going to be very different but i think you know it's going to be for the better, but I think we have to work on first on society and completely change that mentality of a socialist communist regime. And then on, on your other point, what was your other point? I missed, I, I got it lost. It was in. about, uh, I feel like it was really a two-in-one. It mm-hmm. was about the post-communism, but also the cultural differences that have oh, no, arisen. Yeah. Yeah. The, the mm-hmm. cultural differences are going to are gonna be, you know, Cubans have maintained their essence, but it really goes back to that survival mode. The Cuban political system was inspired by the Soviets and they were trained to be cold. They were trained to be relentless and fierce and very, you know, sangre fria, cold-blooded. So, and I see it in my, in my dad. My dad is very stern, very, you know, this has to be this way. And I feel, and, and when I moved to Miami, a lot of my, my friends and, and their fathers were the exact same way. So I say, okay, this is not my dad. This is something that it's it's part of that that uprising in a in a communist society. So cultures are very different. Comparing it from my grandparents who were raised in a previous post a few years into the revolution to someone who lived throughout the revolution, it's very different. It's going to bring a lot of shock and also a lot of the diaspora that wants to come to Cuba, that wants to go back to Cuba. There's going to be a lot of cultural shocks that when that tr- democratic transition happens and that post-communist Castro regime transition happened. It's something that we as a community have to come together and really discuss. So I really can't foresee how that is going to be, but it's going to be something that has to be extremely, extremely worked on. Not just in the transition, but how we, we as a society, as a diaspora, as people living in the island, come together and, and you know, work on a free Cuba. We're kind of on a free post-communist. Campaign. I guess along those lines, I'm curious, what do you think about, because at least this is my understanding of it, mm-hmm. in terms of the embargo and everything like mm-hmm. that. The only ones who seem really barred from Cuba are Americans, or at least, you know, they're the majority of it, mm-hmm. like for tourism, 
people from Spain can go, Canada, Mexico. Sí. And I'm wondering, what do you think about tourism to Cuba with the regime that's in place? So you're definitely correct. Let me just play. There's not a blockade in Cuba. No hay un bloqueo. Okay. Sorry. Solo hay un embargo. There's only an embargo. And an embargo, the embargo basically states that Americans and Americans' companies cannot make this with the Cuban regime. Cuba can negotiate and intertwine with any other country in the world besides the United States. So let me just say that. If it were a blockade, it would be like the one they did in South Africa with the apartheid regime where they closed up air, land, and sea. Did I say blockade or embargo? No, you said embargo. No, and the Cuban yeah. regime calls it un bloqueo. Mm -hmm. Basically, they basically blame everything to the embargo. Mm -hmm. But that's a whole, that's a whole different topic we can go into it. So, yes. So tourism in Cuba. Let me tell you something about tourism in Cuba. It was very helpful because after the negotiations with Obama, Cuba, the Cuban regime allowed for cuenta propistas, which were basically land property owners, but they weren't property owners because everything still belonged to the state. But they were able to manage through, let's say, a, a little restaurant or a little hotel or hotel. They were able to manage on their own who would stay, who would come. So that helped a lot of cuenta propistas, self-employed workers, as the regime calls it, to really get an extra income and see, you know, be their own, own business holders. And that really helped because instead of staying with in a hotel by the regime, from the regime, you could stay with someone independent and you would eat from their house, eat from their property, take from their, from wherever they were staying. So that extra income would go to them. So tourism was really great. It also opened the eyes of a lot of Cuban because you would, let's say I was a tourist over there and I would talk to an everyday Cuban. I would say, no, 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 that's not like this. I remember being one day with, my cousin's friends, and we were sitting in a portal, all of us, and we were talking. And I was saying, no, it's normal in Puerto Rico to go to, go to the movies and, and, and then go out to eat. And they would say, you have the money for that? There's money for that? I'm like, yeah, that's a normal thing to do. Like, wow, we can't even do that here. So tourism really opened the eyes of Cubans inside the island. And also it helped for these Puentrampopistas, which a lot of them, you know, went out on July 11th. You know, because they had their own self-employed business, but it was the government imposing crazy amount of laws against them, basically declining their business, taking away so much of their hard work for their own purposes. And, and you know, it, they were a lot of the majority who went out on July 11th. So it opened eyes in a lot of ways. I'm sorry, but can you give some more context on okay. July 11th? And just, oh, yeah. perfect. July 11th. Okay, so, let me just finish this <laughs> yeah. and we'll go on July 11th. So yeah, it, tourism is, it was super good for for Cubans and Cubans, of course. There's another part that wasn't so good because a lot of the Cuban, the tourism that went to Cuba, a lot, a large amount of that income went to the Cuban government and they used that money for a repressive method and to keep putting the people in Cuba inside what I call an, an 11 million jailhouse, which is the entire island. So it had a good side, it had its bad sides, but always have to see the positive. But yeah, it was good and bad. So July 11th, oh my God, July 11th, it was basically, I believe, it's the beginning of the end. It's the first time, well, previous to the Maleconazo in 94, that thousands of Cubans took to the streets to demand rights. But, you know, after July 11th, there's more than 1,000 political prisoners. As of we know, there could be more. But July 11th, really, it's that spark that Cubans needed to really defy the regime. And I don't think we're, and I think we're going to see another big demonstration pretty soon because it's heating up. There's protests every single day in Cuba, little ones. But the thing is, 
And that's where we go back to the tourism. The repressive methods of the Cuban regime are so, so, so violent and so, you know, and like I said, there's 1,000 political prisoners right now. And those political prisoners, they're, they're in jail, but their families are being threatened every day. They're being harassed every day. Most of them, you know, have taken the, not, I don't want to say, you know, the way out they have to leave the island because they can't take it anymore. I just had a conversation with my cousin. And I'm going to release that story really soon. So her neighbor um, put the song Patria y Vida and security state agents came and they told him to take it out because songs that oppose the regime or prohibit in Cuba because freedom of speech, anything that goes against the regime, the silence disappeared or even killed sometimes. And we can talk about Oswaldo Baya later on. And by, well, just to make the story short, he was beaten to the point where he had to go to the emergency room and had four points on his mouth of how hard they beat them. So the people are scared. People are scared to go out again. But I feel, you know, every day in Cuba, there's power outages for 18 hours done by the regime because the, 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 the infrastructure system in Cuba is collapsing every single day. So we would have, you know, change, change is coming. But July 11 really was, was set that spark. Going back to that idea of the beginning of the end. Mm -hmm. In your mind, communism is gone. Right. And other than like this small enclaves, but it's not, there's no Soviet Union. All of what was is gone in the post-Cold War era. Mm -hmm. right, we're in a different era mm -hmm. that is still developing with the CCP, with these like mm -hmm. different governments. Mm -hmm. In your mind, how do you see it ending? Is it with intervention? Is it with social media? Like where does this go? Oh my God. So I, I really, you know, I trying to keep it as safe as possible. You can yeah. disagree with me also. No, like, I, completely. I, you know, yeah. I don't. You know, I mean, for, for my, you know, for, for work, I have to maintain a very neutral position. But my opinion on this is that totally going, you know, trying, and we see it in the, in the case of Venezuela, the perfect example mm -hmm. is Venezuela. I don't see, I don't see in a dictatorship, especially as cold and ruthless as the Cuban one, where elections are taken. So I'm just going to leave it at that mm -hmm. for the sake of, of my work. Elections in a dictatorship won't work. Would you mind for a second if I go bigger picture yes. outside of Cuba and look at Latin America? Yes. Societal, the way society is built in Latin America mm -hmm. that leads to these men like Castro, like Chavez, before Castro, like Batista mm -hmm. or whoever, right? Like what exactly is it that can be stopped so that does not continue to happen? Okay, in that so way? so taking Batista and previous to Castro, the United States had a lot of influence on who took power in Cuba. So the United States was fond of, of Fulgencio Batista. And before that, there was one election, I don't remember which one, but there was one election where the Cuban people voted for a candidate and the United States decided that another candidate that best served its interests was the one to lead Cuba. So previous to Castro, the term, and going back to the term free Cuba, you know, Jose Martí, when he talked about a free Cuba, it was a Cuba that was completely sovereign, that had no influence on other countries, that Cubans inside the island were the ones to decide the future of Cuba, who would represent them in government. So there's never been a free Cuba. But Fidel Castro made that this idea because he went against the Yankees, against the United States, or no, Yankees, yeah. that there was a free Cuba. But there wasn't a free Cuba because he depended and everything on the Soviet Union, later on Venezuela. But Fidel Castro and, and populist leaders like 
Chávez, like Correa en Ecuador, eh, Evo Morales, Bukele. Bukele. Mm -hmm. It's in Latin America, sadly, there's a, a large population that has, hasn't been educated and they fall into the lies of equality and the lies of, you know, it's the rich that, that's the fault of all our problems. And they fall into this romanticized cult of personality that it makes it easily to fall prey into. So, you know, it's really, really a thing of a lack of education and also because of the inequality that it prevails in Latin America and the lack of opportunities. We've, you know, Latin America is a country, is a region where it's the less freest in terms of political, societal and economic aspect. So they, instead of, you know, really going to depth why you can't be successful in Latin America, they decide to blame the problems on, on other people. And also, it's a self self accountability too, and and, and anime. it's 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 a whole different. But it's it's basically you know in, in in a society that you know has been misrepresented. It's a society of lack lack of education, misrepresented, and that they felt they they need someone to to represent them to give them justice. So it's easy for for people like Castro, people like Chavez, to go into power because they know how to take that large amount of population. You know, they say if if you keep your population so I don't want to use the term but it's how it's said dumb and scared you can control them mm -hmm. and that's exactly what what has happened in our region sadly I want to double back once again I know I love to do this the Bristol dream was you know American backed the United States has a history of doing that in Latin America mm -hmm. and just because of your history and your family's history and I'm going to get into the other part of this yeah. in a little bit but do you consider yourself American like Cuban American or just Cuban? so I consider myself a Puerto Rican born, no, Cuban, Cuban American born Puerto Rican. I mean, we, we Puerto Ricans have an American citizen. The citizenship, I was born with an American citizen. We've been part mm -hmm. of, the, we've been guaranteed citizenship since 1917. And we've been part of the United States since 1898. Of so, course. you know, American culture and, and principles are very in-depth in our culture. But the thing is about Cubans in the diaspora, we have a very big identity crisis because I remember being in college. I remember being in high school and we were talking about Puerto Rico previous to Luis Muñoz Marín, which was basically the, the governor that made the Commonwealth, that made the Commonwealth as it is. And I remember that teacher, she's also Cuban. Her parents are Cuban. She told the class, hey, call your grandmas and ask them how was, how was Puerto Rico before Luis Muñoz Marín, before the Commonwealth. And then she said to me and my sister, Minus you, Alejandra and Angelica, because your family is not from Puerto Rico. They're from Cuba, so you can't ask them. And then I remember be, them going to college because I did two years of college in Puerto Rico, Universidad de Puerto Rico, Mayagüez, and people would tell me, why are you talking about Cuba? You're, you weren't even born in Cuba. And then I had other people say to me, why are you talking about Puerto Rico? You're not even Puerto Rican. So it's, it's a huge identity crisis that every single person that, you know, was, bo was born to Cuban parents or grandparents or feel very Cuban have that identity crisis because we belong, but we don't belong. I went to school in Puerto Rico. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. My majority of my friends were from Puerto Rico, but, you know, I, my, I was, I, then I would, would go home and I would arroz con frijoles, I would play Cuban music, I would go to Casa Cuba on Sundays and then back to school on Mondays with my Puerto Rican friends and then my, my Cuban Puerto Rican teachers. So I feel like soy parte pero no pertenezco. I'm a part of, but I don't belong to. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how a lot of my Cuban friends who were born in Puerto Rico and other parts of the country feel. And so it's a very big identity crisis. But, you know, I'm very proud American. I'm very proud to be Puerto Rican, and I'm very proud to also be Cuban. So I would say I feel all three. I feel all three. 
it's a it's a crisis. It's an identity crisis. Would you mind if I comment real quick? Yeah, I agree with you. I think that is very real and just amongst yeah. what. But I, you seem very strong-willed in your resolve, and I'm curious as to what can you attach that to. Like you, I under like I agree with everything you just said. But mm -hmm. even as you said it, there's this look in your eyes that says like, I know who I am, and even if I don't belong, I do not give a fuck. That's just how I'm getting this vibe up, and yeah. I'd love to hear. What do you think about that? Me, that I feel given because I, my, I mean, my dad, you know, I, I was born in 98. My, my dad left Cuba in 97. When I was already three years old, I already knew the Cuban anthem by heart. Mm -hmm. And I, then I learned the Puerto Rican. And then I, no, I first learned the American, no, I first learned the Cuban one. Then in school, I learned the American one and the Puerto Rican one. So I know three anthems. But I, you know, I, I feel very proud of my Cuban essence because it's, 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 it's my, it's how I grew up. It's my morals, my culture, my values. The way I represent myself, it's how I was raised. It's how a lot of my Cuban uh, friends are, are, are raised. It's, it's, it's the same aspect. And when I would go to my friends from Puerto Rico's house and how, you know, how they would live every day, it was very different from mine. So I really can't say, hey, yes, I was born in Puerto Rico, but mi crianza, my, my, my roots are, are from Cuba. So... I'm proud of who I am. And, and it's also to honor my family. It's to honor everything they've done for me. But, be, but I feel my strong love for Cuba because, you know, I grew up very into depth of my Cuban culture. And I have to thank my grandparents and my dad for that because they never, never for one day made me forget where I was from, where my roots were from. But let me tell you one thing about. So there's Cubans. There, Cubans are divided into two aspects. There's Cubans who left Cuba and forgot about Cuba. And that's happened to my history teacher in, in, in high school. Their parents, her parents forgot about Cuba. They were Cubans, but they didn't give a care. They left. They were Puerto Ricans. But there's Cubans like my grandparents who left Cuba. Cuba stayed within them. And so I'm, I'm, I'm the product of that. So that's why I feel very, very proud of who I am, but also very proud to be Puerto Rican. I mean, I grew up in Puerto Rico and it's also shaped and it's made the woman I am today. But I always have to remember, you know, where my roots are from. And it's also a mission because it's Cuba is an island that has 11 million people struggling for freedom. And, you know, I grew up very aware of how important freedom is and how to be, how to be, you know, how be grateful for that and not take it for granted. And it's, and, and I, you know, and it's also a love for family. I want to see my family over there and being completely free and having the life I had to live and you know, all the things I've achieved because I'm in this country that grants us freedom. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I guess generally speaking, I want to, like, get a deeper understanding of how the history of the island has affected the people now that they are in exile. And I think that's a very important thing to know, where it's like, as opposed okay. to other diasporas, Mira. it very much feels like an exile. So it's an exile. Okay, mm -hmm. so let me, t let me start a bit with the whole issue on Cuba. Cuba has always suffered from political instability. There's never been a stable government in Cuba. Brioso Carras, which is an ex-president in Cuba, said all he was a and, and if you, you couldn't read and he was a very bad president in Cuba. He said all presidents in Cuba, in Cuba have been bad, but I've been the best. And he was not the best. Let me tell you that. Nobody has been the best. So there's always been political instability. There's also been a lot of influence for the United States in political, in political Cuban, in, in, in Cuban politics from the beginning. But, you know, the political impact, Cuba has an impact in, you know, in the rest of the world and political science. You know, fun fact, the, Latin, the Center for Latin American Studies in Georgetown was created in the, in the 1960s because American scholars could not comprehend 
how a revolution in Cuba had triumphed. So fun fact over there. So oh, the center well, for yeah, they was created because scholars couldn't understand how the Cuban revolution triumphed. So you know, it had a huge effect on U.S. foreign policy, on U.S. policy, and on U.S. politics for sure. After, you know, the revolution triumphed. But it's an exile community because it falls really deep into the nostalgia, into that, you know, everything they own, everything, you know, Cubans like my family. And that's the thing about Cubans. You know, Cubans made Miami. They're hardworking. They had their businesses in Cuba. They were scholars. They were, and, and they built their life, their friends, their family in Cuba. To be taken away from that in the name of social justice, in the name of communism and socialism, it's, it hurts. And, and also, you know, there's a lot of Cubans who left Cuba who never were able to see their family, who never were able to go back to the island to really feel that it, 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 it's an exile community because a lot of them can't go back to Cuba. If they go back, they'll be threatened, they'll be harassed, and it's better for not. And also, it's also they don't want to go back because, you know, going back to the island that you grew up in, that... The school that you went to now destroyed or the little pharmacy that you would go pick up candy destroyed. And the, the like my grandma, the streets you would walk with your friends at night completely filled with, you know, trash or completely destroyed. It hurts. It hurts mm -hmm. to see what was, once was your whole life be completely destroyed by a dictatorship. So it's really an ex mainly it's an exile because of that nostalgia and because many, many, many Cubans cannot go back to the island. Or they don't want to, or they've been, you know, threatened by the government or pinched by the government. Like I think I am because of my involvement in the activism that I probably can't go back to Cuba. And now I can't ever go visit. I mean, I don't know. I, it depends. You would have to test your luck on the airport. Right? Yeah, yeah. When you go to Lidawana and she's like, mm, you've been, yeah. The Cuban government is desperate for dollars. Yes. So, <laughs> It's basically a country that has fallen into, I, I'm, I, I'm going to be very a bit vulgar, but into prostitution. They, they, wanna, they, 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 they prostitute their ideals for cash. So fun fact, uh, the, the, the country is suffering from power hours for 18 hours, but hotels in Cuba are still powered all night. This is happening now. There's outages because there's no petroleum in Cuba. Venezuela is not sending petroleum. So they don't have it and they don't have the money to buy, you know, from other countries. They have a huge debt mm -hmm. from China. They have a huge debt from Russia. So they're, you know, it's, it's a system that's collapsing. They've been able to maintain themselves. And I'm going to bring this important point. They've been able to maintain themselves because of people like my family who sends money to their relatives. Mm -hmm. So in remittances, I think last year, remittances were $3 billion in, U, in, in, Cuban, in, in the Cuban economy. $3 billion. So they've been able to maintain themselves. And because of the people like my family who send stuff. So they, when Trump did all the sanctions back in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, it really, really, really hit the Cuban government hard. But now with the whole Biden administration taking a more friendly approach, you know, with more, with more planes going to, um, to Cuba, just rather than Havana and other prop, now in other provinces, people are able to take more money, more stuff, and that's been able to maintain the government. So that's another battle. It's like, do we agree with sanctions like Trump did or we take a more friendly approach? And and this is a whole idea because the thing is, it's okay, yes, I'm maintaining the government by sending my, my family money, but I can't leave my family dying of hunger. I can't leave my family without clothes or without food or without, you know, what do I do in this situation? So that's really something that I think Fidel Castro was really smart, you know, because he, he knew that in the ethics of, of Cuban culture was the family unity. So, you know, I want to see the Cuban government struggle and end but I don't want to see my family die of hunger.
or my family, pasar necesidad y pasar trabajo. So they, they, the, the dictatorship put the Cuban diaspora in a very tough, tough situation that has, you know, has been successful. Has been successful in maintaining, but $3 billion remittances and has been, you know, what has been keeping the government alive for 63 years. And also, you know, there's this whole embargo, but, you know, the, the number three exporter of the cube of, of Cuba is the United States. Poultry from the from Cuba is comes from Kentucky, USA, fun fact. And the embargo exempts humanitarian aid and first aid kits and anything else. So there's not, you know, there's not really an excuse to blame everything. You know, there's a huge factor that the United States has played a part in what in the current political crisis and and then the triumph of the revolution. But we can't put the blame on the United States or any other, the only true blockade or bloqueo is the, Cu what the Cuban dictatorship has with its people. It's the Cuban government that doesn't allow the regular Cuban to go to a hotel. The Cuban government, you know, that doesn't allow the Cuban to own property and to live a dignified life. So if we're going to put the blame on something, on what really is to blame on the Cuban societal, political, economic issue is the Cuban dictatorship that attests in all freedoms. So on that note, for anybody listening, do not listen to what comes out of the government propaganda machine that has lived on for, you know, six, that has been able to maintain itself for 60 years by lying to the people. The only real, real problem in Cuba that doesn't allow for, for the country to, to come out of this political, societal, economic situation is the, is the Cuban dictatorship. How has the United States become culturally richer? Because oh my of God. Cubans. Okay, I can... Well, very simple, but just look at Miami. All the Cubans, when they, they left uh, Cuba, a lot of them were scholars. A lot of them were business owners. I mean, look at Bacardi, look at what else was a Cuban. Well, Bacardi. But a lot of them were scholars. A lot of them were business owners, and they brought all that to Miami. But another thing, Cubans, at least from, from my, my grandparents and my, my dad's generation, they saw scarcity. They saw lack of opportunity. So when they came to the United States... And they said, and they saw that they had every resource to do, to, to reach their dreams and to reach their goal and to be successful. They made it happen. You know, just look at, you know, Mayor Suarez. He came, well, his dad came with Cuba without nothing. Now his son is the, the other Cuban-American mayor in Miami. So, and that's a lot of the Cuban, the Cuban story. Just take a look at all the children from Peter Pan. And Peter Pan was, it was Los Niños Peter Pan were basically parents in Cuba who sent their children in Catholic to Catholic charities, Catholic priests, and then they would send them to camps in Miami because their parents feared that they would be indoctrinated with communism. And I would say 95% of, the of these children that were Peter Pan became extremely, extremely successful. I mean, one of them was Willy Chirino. If you know Willy Chirino, and he was, he's a famous singer in Miami. Another one was Eduardo Padron, who's actually, you know, He's the founder of, well, he was one of the directors for the Miami Dade College. So all of these extremely successful. And, you know, and Pitbull, I mean, look at Pitbull. He says he, he, there's an interview that, and this is my, also my, something that I grew up with. I don't need it to be difficult. I just need it to be possible. And that's really the Cuban mentality. You know, I had nothing in Cuba and I came to this country where everything is possible as long as I work hard. Just take a look at Miami. Miami is a perfect example of what Cubans can do and what Cubans that came nothing because Cubans, a lot of Cubans came with nothing but the clothes on their back or they came with just the clothes on their raft when they arrived in 1994 and they, be, they become successful and they've taken their children like me and my sister to where we are now and reaching our dreams. So Cubans have enriched not only culturally with their food, Go to Miami for the tastiest Cuban food you ever try, but also in, in, in ways of business and, and 
that, you know, a lot of Miami, cities like Miami didn't see before the, the, before Cubans arrived. So, yeah. What's next for you? What's next for me? Well, my next for me is to finish my master's here at Georgetown to really, you know, I came here also with a mission to tell the population here in, in, in the university in DC what, what's really going on in Cuba because the situation in Cuba has been a bubble in Miami and, and to get it, really get those stories out there and also to become a professional journalist and, and denounce all of, all of human atrocities and lack of human rights and violations of human rights across the region. And hopefully make our region a better place where we don't have to immigrate because imi- your parents, it's hard. People leave home because they have to. Nobody wants to leave, you know, let's say Cuba where they grew up and nobody wants, you know, to take a raft, put, like my dad says, a raft, put four sticks on it and throw themselves out in the ocean mm-hmm. for a better life. Nobody wants to do that. So hopefully my goal as a, as a professional is to really try to make our region, our region a better place where we don't have to leave. And then uh, people like us don't have to have identity crisis of where we are <laughs> and we can stay, you know, in, 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 the, in the place where of our roots, of our culture. And then to keep, you know, fighting for a free Cuba. I'm not going to rest until I see a free Cuba. And then if, if I have to go out of my way, you know, to go to the embassy like I did on July 11th and be photographed by, by the people inside there. And, and even stuff like this I love to do to talk about po- podcasts and to talk about the reality of Cuba, then, you know, it's, it's, it's my life mission to see a free Cuba and honor my grandparents and my dad and my whole family who left Cuba to give us a better life. And people in that and the island deserve that. And people who left the island deserve to go back to a free Cuba. So that's, that's what next for me. Patri Vida. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. What do you think you got out of it? I felt primarily I was thinking about how um, diaspora communities absorb and affect politics. If I'm being honest with you, I think that was the biggest takeaway from this conversation for me. Um, there was a lot of things that I recognize from within my own family, from within other families that I know who may not even be Cuban. Right. But I do think there was something about the effects of you know personal histories reverberate and i think even between us we talk about this a lot outside of the podcast right um i think there were some things i most definitely disagreed with in terms of um latin american society i think that was one of the things i wasn't i wasn't quite there with but even then he still spoke a lot of truth even if i didn't fully agree with the final conclusions yeah um I remember you telling me after you finished the interview that you know she talks about an identity crisis but one of the things that you appreciated about the interview is how clear and passionately Cuban she is yeah I mean most definitely I think it's something to really admire truthfully because even talking to other people for this project they'll say they have an identity crisis and you can see that like it's very recognizable with Angelica I was like looking for it (laughs) it's like like, where is the identity crisis like you seem um very well-rounded and knowing what you want but I still respect 
explanation of it afterwards, right? I feel like it may be beyond... He speaks beyond a singular person in that regard and talks more about the experience that, you know, I've definitely talked about with you and with other people. Just it can sometimes be confusing, especially given the expectations that your own culture may put onto you, plus like the dominant American culture, plus all the little social cleavages that pop up throughout. Right. Like it can be very hard to maybe find that anchor. But I really I really am just uh, respect that she has her anchor yeah yeah i like that you finished the conversation talking about culture um and it reminded me of a little experience that you and i recently had when we were at the um smithsonian museum for african-american history and culture and we got to see a lot of afro-cuban representation there yeah that did make me really happy i think that was um that was really interesting to see at the museum. Yeah. And I really respected how they had a greater conversation about diaspora outside of the U.S., you know, through Latin America and the Caribbean. And even there was one portion that talked about um, France. I really yeah. respected that. But the Cuban, Afro-Cuban exhibit really made me happy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I bet that it gave you a lot more to think about in terms of this conversation. No, most definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy the way it turned out. And yeah. I really want to just thank Angelica for the time she spent. Well, you want to leave us out? This has been Minority Report with me, Salomon Flamenco, and my beautiful guest host, Leilani Rania Gienser. Please email us at minorityreport.beat at gmail.com if you have a story you want to tell. A Forever Monkey Pudi recorded our music, and I am the producer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back next time. Enough of Malek. Bye bye.